The views expressed on the patient's perspective come directly from patients, so they are not intended to diagnose, treat, or replace professional medical advice. Information coming from the patient's perspective is for entertainment and educational purposes only, so if you have any health concerns regarding yourself or anyone else, please see a physician. The Patient's Perspective is a podcast created by patients for patients and does not focus on any specific disease or condition. Content may make you laugh, cry, and question your moral beliefs surrounding healthcare and the many issues patients run into while in the system. Finally, the most important point of view is cast into the light. The Patient's Perspective. Hi everyone, my name's Kyla and I'm the host of The Patient's Perspective, the podcast created by patients for patients. Today I would like to discuss my own story, a little bit of my own story, as well as get into why The Patient's Perspective was created, as well as the code of ethics surrounding alternative versus conservative therapy, which will more than likely end up being discussed on this uh, podcast. So a little bit of introduction. Uh, I was the first person in Calgary, Alberta, Canada to be diagnosed as allergic to my own progesterone. Um, my ovaries were removed in 2017. And we also suspected estrogen as well. So some of these cases, they had been found to have dual allergies. Now, we never did an intradermal test to confirm that one, even though the progesterone allergy got confirmed twice through intradermal tests. But um, I did have uh, purpura. I developed purpura, which is bleeding into the skin while I was on hormone uh, replacement therapy when I was using something called a GnRH analog, which is a drug that shuts your progesterone down from the pituitary gland. That was actually what we used to test out whether or not removing hormones from me was actually going to be helpful. And then within a few months, I developed um, purpura and I was on an HRT for estrogen at that point in time. So we removed me from the HRT and um, then eventually I did go on to have my, my surgery. I also was found to be, through photo testing, uh, to be allergic to the highest testing level of UVB light. So that was, they have this test where it tests little patches on your skin with different uh, light waves. And I came out positive to, like I said, the highest testing level even though it was very, it was quite faint, but it was still positive. Because of this and because of other symptoms that I had been complaining about that the progesterone allergy really couldn't um, explain, the dermatologist or immunodermatologist who 
helped me get those diagnoses, also suspected that I might have something called MCAS or mast cell activation syndrome, which is kind of this new and up and coming condition that just, they just created diagnostic criteria in around 2016. Uh, And I had met this dermatologist in around 2000 and, um, uh, 10, either 2009 or 2010, because my eldest son was a, a, a young baby still when I first met her, because I flare after, um, after having um, children, so postnatal, and at the end of the pregnancy as well, I guess you can say. So the whole last half plus birth sucks, <laughs> okay, <laughs> which just sucks for everybody. Um, but with, with this condition, it, it really flares up um, for myself, leading to the leading to birth and directly postpartum. So mast cell activation syndrome can come along with a wide variety of symptoms. So um, you can have just sensitivities to uh, different uh, chemicals, chlorine. I, I cannot tolerate chlorine at all and neither could my children. Um, most people can't. But the best way to describe it, and, and this is why the condition is so misunderstood, is people say, well, I, I, get, I get rashes when I'm in the pool as well. That's okay. Do they last four days? <laughs> huge difference in between someone whose eyes are, are irritated for several hours after they've been in a chlorinated pool versus somebody that gets a rash that covers half of their face after they've been in the pool and it lasts four to five days. So... This is the difference of how you can start to tell if somebody is super sensitive to uh, either chemicals or smells. I couldn't, I used to not be able to walk down cleaning aisles. That's actually improved quite a bit since I've seen this allergist, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, uh, bee stings, insect bites. My youngest used to swell up from uh, getting bitten by mosquitoes, which I think they call Skeeter syndrome. And he doesn't swell up like that anymore. Um, uh, sulfites, uh, not sulfates, sulfites, uh, which is a preservative. Um, dyes, like blue dye, red dye can make us sick. Um, like getting headaches and leading to vomiting, right? So just a wide variety of things that could not be explained by the progesterone uh, hypersensitivity. The problem is when it was all happening, it seemed like one condition. And what we found out was that it was actually, um, like once we took away one, like the, the progesterone was massive because your period is always coming for me. You know, like if, if you still have a menses, my period was always on its way. So I could be reacting to something else, let's say the sun. And maybe I ended up getting into a situation where I was in the sun too long and now my period's coming a week to 10 days later. So now you have, you're doubled up on reactions. And so that's where it gets really complex. So when we finally took out the progesterone, and the hormones, we were finally able to visibly see what the other reactions were, um, which I kind of suspected, but I couldn't pinpoint it because there's always progesterone in your system. Uh, for the most part, there's just different levels. 
So we had to take the hormones out to be able to see what the other triggers were. And then once I removed my ovaries, the majority of my problems, they completely like dropped off like a cliff. And now the uh, symptoms, when I do get them, there is usually a very clear um, trigger. So that's the best way to explain myself. Um, one thing that really stuck out in my mind was this dermatologist or immunodermatologist who is the most caring and loving doctor I've ever met in my entire life. Um, one thing that she said to me on our first visit, because I'd taken photos and videos of my attacks and many other doctors wouldn't look at them. And she did. And after she looked at it, and she looked up and she says, you know, you know, I started apologizing to her. I said, I'm sorry. And I was crying and bawling my eyes out. I said, I'm so sorry. I was looking on Google and blah, blah, blah. You know, you're explaining why you're looking online and stuff. And she says, you know, with how sick you've been, I would be more worried if you weren't looking online because that would mean that you no longer care about yourself. And it was at that moment that I knew that she was going to be the one who figured it out. See, and here's where I can cry. I always, <laughs> I can't, you would think like 10, like 20, 10 plus years later, I could talk about this without crying, but, um, or tearing up. But, um, you know, her way about treating patients is the way that I wish most doctors would strive to be. The reason why I'm doing this podcast is due to the fact that it did take so long because we can now date symptoms back, basically, especially with the, the MCAS, um, to, to childhood. Now, the reason why we think this might be, and this is where the allergist comes in, is the fact that um, I was born to a mother who was in a major lupus flare. She was in multi-organ um, multi uh, level um, uh, failure when she was pregnant with me, including her liver, which is not common in lupus. And it's because we would find out years later, she also had primary biliary cirrhosis. So these conditions were more than likely attacking her at the same time that she was pregnant with me. And... Obviously, when I came out, um, there was lots of birth issues. I was born premature. Nobody, at the time, my mother will tell you that they literally told her there was only about a 1% chance I was going to make it. I was born about two some pounds. I looked like a drowned rat when I was born. And I was one of the smallest babies in the ICU. And I was one of the first ones to go home. Obviously, though, my mom didn't breastfeed me. Um, this was not during, I mean, this was 1981. This was not during the times, I think now they bring women, they try to bring women into the rooms to have uh, time with the baby who's in incubators because they know that touch and breast milk and stuff is quite important. I mean, this just wasn't done in 1981, particularly with a baby that's only two pounds. So... 
I wasn't breastfed. And, you know, and this isn't to make anyone who isn't breastfeeding uh, feel bad. I was not able to breastfeed my own kids. Um, that was another problem we found. I would develop rashes with breastfeeding. And there's actually something called breastfeeding anaphylaxis. But let's get back onto track. But I suspected that might have been occurring when I was post-childbirth as well. Uh, so I, I wasn't breastfed. And that is one of the ways that good bacteria is introduced to a baby. And unfortunately, they now know that healthy or good bacteria in your gut is actually really, really critical um, in terms of um, helping to stave off um, allergies. So due to um, maternal and paternal uh, medical history, both sides of my parents have autoimmune conditions. My mother's side is absolutely loaded. And my dad's side has had several family members with Crohn's to the point where I think there was even one person that passed away from it. Um, I myself was finally seen by medical genetics because they wanted to rule out hereditary angioedema type 3, which is even more rare than the hormone allergy. Um, but due to the fact that I had two positive progesterone uh, skin tests, um, the geneticist could not justify doing the test for hereditary um, angioedema type 3. So the family's absolutely loaded with immune, uh, immune conditions. And almost all of us, there's most of us don't have the same thing, despite myself and my kids uh, with what looks like MCAS. So Again, going back to the reasons why I'm doing this podcast is number one, as my GP has written in letters uh, to, um, uh, well, supposed to be to, towards the government in terms of my ability to work, basically my entire formative years were taken. Even though I was bright enough, you know, to get into a, a private school in around grade three, uh, my grades started dropping once I entered the school and I got my period in, I believe, the summer of grade, um, going into grade five. I was not quite 11 years old. It was a few weeks before my 11th birthday. And I started getting really sick then, even though I had some symptoms leading up to that. Like I said, maybe this purpura was maybe the the first symptom. Um and we think that I got that in between ages, you know, about 9 to 10, my mom thinks now. She originally thought 7, and then she changed it to about 9 to 10. She was like, maybe you're older. <laughs> and it makes sense, because progesterone allergy, one of the symptoms is actually purpura and bleeding into the skin. So more than likely, that was my very first symptom of the progesterone allergy. However, the MCAS symptoms probably were showing up before then, because I've always complained about stomach aches. As a young child, I'd always be running to the washroom, barely making it on time. Um, so yeah, see, I'm getting off track already. I'm doing this podcast because I feel so lucky. See, again, I'm going to cry. <laughs> the majority of people who have immune conditions, most of them are just going to get worse in their life. 
Now, I'm not saying that I don't have symptoms now. I do. But it is certainly not to the extent that it was before. Autoimmune progesterone dermatitis or progesterone hypersensitivity is actually basically the only potentially curable autoimmune condition that you can have because you can actually remove the problem. Now, the issue is that majority of the women go undiagnosed for God knows how many years. My case of 20 plus years is actually not that uncommon. So, um, and there's only about 200 cases recorded. Um, my case was recorded in a realm where there's probably, there's in between less than 100. So from the time I've been diagnosed worldwide, there's been around probably about 100 more cases worldwide. So I came in somewhere when there was still about 50 to 100 people who had been confirmed worldwide. So I've learned a lot. <laughs> I've been tested under the sun basically for every single autoimmune disease or immune condition you can possibly think of multiple times. Um, I was so sick with, um, uh, what do you call it? opportunistic infections at one point in time. Again, we now suspect that's because the gut brain and lung access was so like was not functioning normally due to my lack of um, good bacteria because I was constantly being put on antibiotics. And for the sinus infections, when we didn't know that it was due to my hormones <laughs> and this then resulted in killing even more bacteria and me being unable to replenish it and causing a vicious cycle of me just becoming sicker and sicker. So by the end, I even picked up uh, hemophilus influenza. That was one of the last major opportunistic infections I picked up before I met the immunodermatologist. How I was treated, though, by professionals, by family members, by... Um, you know, bosses was quite terrible. And it was because I was undiagnosed and I was undiagnosed for a very, very long time. Even to the point where I have some family members that even admit that, you know, they probably didn't handle things, you know, the way that they wish they now would have. And there's this huge um, problem with, Persons thinking that patients are hypochondriacs. And my own personal experience now, especially 20 years or more on the forums online, is the fact that that's just not true. Just because somebody is undiagnosed does not mean that they are a hypochondriac. So that was... My main driver for um, creating the patient's perspective is that I, we need to have these hard conversations about what it's actually like. You know, when, when people state, well, they lost their job because they were sick, what actually happened to them because they lost their job? You know, then they lost their wife, then they maybe their kids moved out, maybe this, maybe that. We don't talk about that all that much. We talk about it in the forums. We don't talk about it uh, on a on a public level and during the pandemic there was a lot of mistrust there was a lot of mistrust aimed towards the healthcare industry 
And due to now being an advocate and having fantastic care um, from like 2009 on with the professionals that I run into, you know, I, I understand where the professionals are coming from, but as a patient who was stuck in that system for decades, literally decades, floundering like a dead fish, um, or I guess a fish out of water, not quite dead, right? <laughs> I, was, I was always pretty close. You know, I needed intravenous IV multiple times, right? Um, and then I'd just get released the next day, and then I'd be back in there two weeks later, right? I understand where the patients are coming from, or at least that, that part of the population that has lost their trust. And patients have to realize that professionals are human. They make mistakes. A lot of the times, the issues that the patients are running into is actually not even due to the doctors themselves. It's due to policy. And so those are the higher-ups, and oftentimes, they're not even uh, physicians themselves, right? But physicians and the institution has to realize that it has done things as well that has caused the mistrust. So, for example, if you don't admit that you made any mistakes, if you're silent during um, reviews or complaints that patients have against you and you don't say anything, that's on you. You did that. So, the patient's perspective hasn't been created to bash physicians. In, in fact, I actually would love to have physicians on the show. What I'd like people to do is to come together and to really talk about the real issues. How those issues actually affected them. Not just talking about it in passing. We want to get down to the nitty gritty. But then at the same point in time for the patients, we want to show, hey, you know, life's not over because you're sick. And... You know, these are ways that have helped me. Maybe they'll help you. And we, we want to give patients um, some hope as well. So the patient's perspective isn't going to be all negative. That was one of my problems in the beginning was how do I make this so that it's not just one bitch fest, right? We don't want it to be that. We, we want, and that's why the, the patient's perspective very recently has been... Um, kind of overhauled and changed into kind of sections in terms of days. So mangled Mondays where we kind of get into different topics um, in, in one sitting. Uh, tough talk Tuesdays where we can kind of talk about those more serious issues. Warrior Wednesdays where we interview somebody about their experience in the healthcare system with an, an arrangement of conditions. Um, around myself, it was Wednesday, Thursday, Thriving Thursdays, where myself and another advocate have little mini competitions against each other to be more positive for one week out of the month, which will hope, hopefully eventually lead to being positive or trying to do positive things um, longer than that, Right. And we hope that that spreads. 
So that's why the patient's perspective was created. Again, it is created by patients and it is for patients. Now, with that said, <laughs> let's get into the code of conduct in terms of, uh, not code of conduct, sorry, code of ethics, in terms of um, alternative versus conservative therapy. I would like the patient's perspective to discuss both options. Um, I lean myself more towards the conservative side of things, mostly just because the alternative is not regulated. Um, not all alternative um, uh, practitioners, I guess you can call them, are scam artists. Many of them have been through situations much like myself and have just found something that works for them and they're so excited to share it with somebody else. However, there are scam artists. And, you know, the patient's perspective isn't going to allow those persons um, airspace or, you know, airtime. That is not what we were about. But the perfect example of this is like massage therapists. A doctor will tell you, you just need a tennis ball. You don't have to spend money on a massage, right? What I would say as a patient to the physician is if I can afford it, I will always pick a massage therapist or a massage and here's why. When I try the tennis ball method, I find it hurts and I find I have to think a lot. Like you have to put the ball on the floor, lay on it, and then I have to wonder, well, how much pressure should I put on it? And then I have to hold those other parts of my body up and I have to control the, the pressure and, and stuff like that. And I find that I'm thinking so hard about what I'm doing to try to get to that knot with this tennis ball that I'm now tensing other muscles in my back that I'm now going to have to go after after that one. So I, I don't really find for myself that the tennis ball method really works that well because then I'm tensing up even more. So obviously, if you are financially destitute and you cannot afford a massage therapist or a massage, then the tennis ball is all you have. But if I can't afford it, I'm always going to pick the massage versus the tennis ball. And it's because the massage, I can relax. There's music. Sometimes we're talking. We get into great talks about the body. Um, so for myself, that is, that is a, um, a more alternative therapy that I would choose for myself. In terms of the actual holistic medication, um, I have a friend that swears by melatonin. Takes it every single night. Loves it. However, melatonin is a hormone. <laughs> I made a mistake before I was diagnosed uh, with progesterone allergy that I couldn't sleep, which now I know is due to anxiety. But so I tried melatonin and I made myself worse. So just because something is natural, just because you find something in the body as I have found out with the progesterone allergy, 
does not mean that it's safe for you. But everyone is unique. And I think that that is one of the hardest things to get across to persons. Because what works for one person isn't going to necessarily work for the other. I would like all of these points of views to be spoken about on the patient's perspective. Because I don't want to alienate um, other than the major ones that are, you can just tell they're scams from, you know, if you're, if you're claiming something's going to cure cancer, you're not coming on the show, okay? Let's just say that. Okay, unless, unless you are a, a medical researcher and this is a massive announcement um, worldwide about the curing of cancer, okay? Um, like Stuff like that is just not going to be welcome on the show. But there, that it is within reason, okay? A lot of patients find that these alternative therapies, for whatever the reason, maybe it's mental, I don't care, seems to work for them. So we don't want to completely close the door on alternative therapies. Because again, I myself, there are a couple of them that I myself enjoy. With that said... Uh, um, I think I'm just going to end this this uh, episode or this, I guess, prologue. I, I'm redoing it because we've changed recently and gotten the, the names of, you know, Thriving Thursday and stuff like that. Uh, we've just created that, uh, as well as having a couple of um, uh, guest uh, co-hosts on the show as well. So with that, I would like to say thank you. And I hope you tune in. I'm so happy you were able to join in and listen to us today. If you have an episode idea or would like to share your story, please email me at info at or join our Facebook page under the same name. From all of us who are working hard bringing patient issues to light, thank you for tuning in and supporting the patient's perspective.